the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Team of the Detroit, hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch says stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Gretch got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretch with the buffs on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of buffs with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Welcome back. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Yale University and a Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Um, she has a, uh, a new book, and it's um, timely and, and interesting. The title is America on Fire. The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. And uh, her name is Elizabeth Hinton. She joins me by phone. Good morning, Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and good morning to you. Um, why start at the 60s when the, the history of, of race relations in this country goes back so much further? Well, in the 1960s, we begin to see uh, a new form of collective protest emerging in black communities across the United States, and that is, of course, the 
the fires that began in the summer of 1964 with Harlem after a 15-year-old high school student was killed by a New York City police officer. And this was a new type of violence that, um, that, that was historically distinct. I mean, most of the kind of collective violence that had rocked the United States historically were white vigilante mobs who um, terrorized uh, black communities. I mean, we just commemorated the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. And in the 1960s, in the context of civil rights and some of the unmet promises of that era, black Americans, particularly in urban centers, began to respond to both police violence, but also the kind of larger set of civil rights grievances about access to jobs and housing opportunities and education uh, with, with sets of violent tactics. And in many ways, we're still living in the aftershocks of the extreme violence that, that the nation witnessed from the late, from the mid 1960s through the early 1970s, there were two kinds of messages that were uh, being pushed. Um, pushed is the wrong word, but but promoted among the black community. One was, of course, Martin Luther King and his calls for peaceful resistance. But then there were others that were, you know, hollering things like burn, baby, burn, and, and right. calling for violence. Um, you know, in Michigan, where I'm at, in Detroit, of course, but in other cities around the country. Um, how, how did that manifest itself? Uh, did it... Did it stop more things from happening, the fact that MLK was saying, let's do this differently? Or um, how, how did those two messages play on blacks living in northern cities like Detroit and uh, Chicago? Yeah, and in many ways, you know, both the kind of nonviolent and violent strains of the, of the struggle for racial justice of the black freedom movement have, have both historically operated in tandem. I mean, in every city, including Detroit, including Flint, and I'm also um, a Michigander. I grew up in Ann Arbor, but, but most of my family lives in Saginaw, Michigan. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and we, you know, on the way, we, we passed through Flint um, many times uh, as, a, as a child. Um, but but in, in, in all of the cities that experienced this form of collective violence, right, there had been you know, this was an outgrowth or came after decades of nonviolent demonstrations, of petitions, of lawsuits challenging racial discrimination and, and, and fighting for greater inclusion, uh, both political and economic inclusion in American society. And, you know, into the 1960s when those, when those demands didn't come for, to fruition or weren't met, increasingly residents felt they had no other recourse but to embrace sets of violent tactics in order to get their demands met. And, you know, King himself recognized that the success of his own branch of nonviolence depended in part on the kind of coercive power of collective violence um, should those nonviolent demands not be met, especially after Martin Luther King's Jr.'s assassination in 1968. We really see a shift 
within the mainstream civil rights movement from nonviolent direct action protests that had kind of characterized the civil rights movement, you know, in the 1950s and the first half of the 1960s to, to, to militant protests, to, you know, calls for black power, um, and to rising, uh, the rising embrace of self-defense as, as a kind of prominent, uh, tactic within the struggle. And that's why, you know, and we often don't think about this, but, but one of the things that was surprising to me and part of why I wrote the book is that, you know, these, these urban uprisings, these rebellions actually increased, um, in, in, in frequency and spread across the United States in cities big and small and in southern cities as well as northern cities after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination and when the federal war on crime was underway. So we often, you know, think of Detroit as kind of being, Detroit 1967 as being the apex of the violence, but new data reveals that in fact that was only the beginning. And, you know, by the early 1970s, throwing rocks and bottles at police officers and burning buildings and looting in some cases became the most widely adopted protest tactic among uh, young black Americans. What degree of influence did the violent acts as, as they began to um, increase ramp up police response and and to what degree has it led to the the kind of systemic breakdown with regard to uh, policing in black communities that we've seen in recent years yeah that's such a key question and and you know why in many ways we're still as i said but living in the kind of shadow or the aftershocks of this period because you know from the very beginning instead of recognizing the violence in Harlem and a number of other cities in the summer of 1964 as, um, as tied to this larger movement for civil rights as being rooted in fundamental socioeconomic grievances, President Lyndon Johnson and others said, no, you know, this has nothing to do with civil rights. This is a riot. This is criminal, and it's senseless. It's lawlessness. Um, it's lawlessness, right. And so, you know, in viewing these these violent protests is simply lawless, then the only response becomes more police, escalating police force. And so we've been stuck in a cycle ever since because, of course, the police, even though the, you know, the, the rebellions weren't, about, weren't just about policing, police encounters, and especially in later years and certainly in our own time, exceptional incidents of police violence, um, you know, become this kind of catalyzing point. So instead of you know, seriously listening or thinking about, well, what are the social policies, what are the conditions that are making people feel as if they have no other recourse but to throw a Molotov cocktail? The response is, okay, well, we're just going to police people. We're going to eventually, right, by the 70s, start enacting draconian sentencing policies, um, et cetera. And so we've been, we've been stuck in this ever since because one of the lessons from this period is that um, the escalation of police force tends to also inflame community violence. Well, yeah, it's it's. I, I don't I don't want to oversimplify it, but it has sort of this chicken and the egg quality, you know, which mm-hmm. which came first, um, you know, police violence or uh, violent protest and rebellion, 
and and now we see police that you know have geared up they're wearing you know military gear and and they've militarized police departments in in urban areas and in some other areas too and it just seems to keep building on itself it's it's sort of a pendulum going back and forth right exactly i think that's one of the, the the reasons why it's important to to really examine you know the the kind of events that lead to these kind of eruptions. I and mean, we think about Detroit and that chicken and the egg question. The rebellion of 67 began after the police department raided a black speakeasy. And very often during this period, you know, rebellions, these collective violent protests emerged in, in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activity, breaking up parties, uh, you know, uh, arresting people, arresting groups of teenagers who were outside for, for seemingly no reason. Um, these strategies were became widely embraced and implemented as part of the war on crime in the mid-60s alongside, uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the beginnings of the, the kind of militarization that has become a police that has become ubiquitous in uh, police departments today, the inaugural legislation of the war on crime, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, which Johnson signed um, in June, so a few months after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, essentially facilitated the transfer of surplus weapons from Vietnam and interventions in Latin America and the Caribbean to local police departments in order to stamp out um, so-called riots or collective violence in their communities so that the National Guard didn't have to be called so that, you know, police are sitting on the ready. And again, you know, instead of investing, instead of making the kinds of investments into the infrastructure of communities, into vibrant institutions, the long-term investment that federal policymakers led state and local governments in embracing was, you know, expanding police surveillance, militarizing police forces, and eventually, um, increasing the, the, the number of prisons and the number of incarcerated people in the United States. More with author Elizabeth Hinton from Yale straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com 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 From the Tom Summer 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with author Elizabeth Hinton from Yale straight ahead. As you put together all of this um, material for this book, America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s, is are there lessons to be learned or or specific moments where something might have been done differently that could have had a different outcome that we can learn from and apply going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think what that's one of the things that was really at times frustrating in researching and writing the book is seeing <laughs> all of the moments in the late yeah. 20th century where alternatives were presented. Those if-only um, moments, right? Yes, yes, and they happen very frequently. I mean, beginning with... Uh, President Johnson's own National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, or the Kerner Commission, which Johnson called in the middle of the violence in Detroit in 67 to investigate the, the causes and recommend, recommend solutions to prevent future unrest. And the Kerner Commission said, okay, if we're serious about identifying root causes, then we have to go, you know, we have to push the war on poverty way further. That These incidents are rooted in... Um, in, in long-standing historical socioeconomic grievances um, and, and the, the, a manifestation of, of what it is to be black in a, in, a, in a racist society. The Kerner Commission said, you know, we need the public and private sector to mobilize, to create jobs for low-income people of color. We need a complete overhaul of urban public schools. We need to ensure that everybody has access to decent housing essentially calling for a Marshall Plan, as some of the Kerner Commission members described it, for American cities. And Johnson and other policymakers were resistant to this, the kind of structural transformation that the Kerner Commission had suggested. And, and we can only imagine, um, you know, what the, what the United States would look like today had that kind of investment been made in response to the, 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 the violence and also civil rights protests of the 1960s instead of police. I mean, one way to think about it is that, you know, there was never, that job creation program for low-income people never materialized, but um, the federal policy, the federal government did support a job creation program for police officers. And we see similar recommendations, um, you know, made by task forces studying these issues for the remainder of the 20th century. I think one thing that's also really clear, and that you know, this is essentially what that call to defund the police is about, is that, you know, the solutions, um, as the Kerner Commission suggested, ultimately lay outside of police themselves, that, you know, that, that going beyond police reform is necessary, that, you know, changing, and this is part of what's being considered as part of the George Floyd Justice Act um, that's, in, that's in Congress right now, you know, changing not only police tactics, you know, banning chokeholds, for instance, um, you know, isn't necessarily going to prevent incidents of police violence. I mean, the officers who um, brutally beat Rodney King in Los Angeles in 1991, um, you know, said that they used their nightsticks and they kicked him because chokeholds had been banned uh, within the L.A. Police Department. We also know that in investing in things like new technologies like body cameras doesn't necessarily lead to greater 
transparency um, or so-called justice. This isn't a problem that we can train our way out of. I think the history um, in this book and, and, and my other research really demonstrates that a new domestic policy path is necessary, um, one that looks like what the Kerner Commission might have suggested and, and what some of the, uh, the, the, the programs that, that sought to empower communities and grassroots organizations during the short-lived war on poverty um, also sought, sought, to, sought to cultivate. There's a, a well-known photograph in, in Michigan circles. I, I've seen it, you know, shared nationally, but it, it shows Michigan Governor, Michigan Republican Governor George Romney um, marching with uh, MLK and, and supporters mm-hmm. of uh, Dr. King's um, in Detroit in, in the late 60s, I believe. And that's that's one snapshot, one moment in time. But there have been um, white political leaders that have been listening. Why has the why hasn't there been action that's been successful, or are they hearing the message and trying the wrong things? Yeah, I mean, I think, so So this is a tough one, you know, especially in thinking about uh, liberal, very liberal policymakers or policymakers who were considered li- liberal, like uh, like Lyndon Johnson. I think it reflects some of the failures of liberal social policy um, and, and uh, racist assumptions on the part of policymakers themselves, a real resistance um, to... To supporting the kind of, of major structural transformation, the kinds of investments necessary to really address racial discrimination and injustice in a meaningful way. Um, a lot of the, you know, one of the things that that was kind of a malignant malignant aspect of the war on poverty is the set of pathological assumptions that steered uh, that steered Johnson's policies about influenced by people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously released his report on the Negro family in March 65, who ultimately argued, who recognized the kind of, uh, the impact of, of, uh, of historical racism in black communities, but ultimately said, well, black poverty is the consequence of black behavior. And so if we want to address black poverty, then we have to address black cultural issues. And that idea really limited the, the kind of terrain of possibilities for war on poverty programs. So instead of, you know, again, that overhaul of public schools at the Kerner Commission had suggested the war on poverty, you know, uh, encourage remedial education programs. Instead of that job creation program, the war on poverty provided job training for people, but job training is only going to get you so far if there, aren't, if there aren't jobs afterwards, if you can't actually secure meaningful employment. And so, you know, I think historically we've seen a real resistance uh, to to bringing about, to supporting the policies and bringing about the transformations necessary to, you know, finally disrupt the racial hierarchies that have, the racial and class hierarchies that have defined the United States since its founding. And, and in, you know, with various commissions like the ones you've been describing, Elizabeth, very often these are primarily groups of white people who are right. trying to come up with policy that will th- fix things for the black community. 
And right, and, and I, I think, wonder yeah, if if one of the lessons learned is that uh, white people, for all their best intentions, don't get it, and maybe there should be some black people on the commissions and in these groups helping to form policy. Right, and and you know, I mean, very often there, you know, the Kerner Commission, um, there were there were black members of the commission. They're 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 often very outnumbered, and I, I think in part is, you know, there's not, uh, and this is, this is kind of the model, um, you know, these task forces are called, they identify all the problems, they recommend all these solutions, but then there's no enforcement mechanism. Um, you know, so we know what the problems are, it's just, it's just the political will to actually um, bring it about. And I think one of the, one of the, the, the most interesting um, aspects of the war on poverty and one that's worth returning to is the principle of maximum feasible participation and community action programs where the federal government for kind of a brief window, really only between 1964 and 1965, were funding um, autonomous community-based organizations directly because the idea is that, you know, those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, that poor people know best how to address the problems within their own community. And I think alongside this resistance to bringing about the, the, the kind of massive systemic changes that are necessary, there's also, there's also been a resistance historically to really cede power to, uh, to the people, to, to the grassroots in order to, to, uh, to, to, to envision and, 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 and help support uh, vibrant communities. You know, there's, uh, as, as we were talking earlier, um, there's, there's a sense by a lot of members of of law enforcement various uh, police departments and so on that they are under attack mm-hmm. and and that they need to be more militarized as a, a sense of self-defense now that doesn't explain you know the the george floyd killing or you know the shooting results in in some traffic stops those kinds of things but this overall sense of militarizing to react to protests, peaceful and otherwise. And we saw that reinforced on January 6th when a riot broke out at the U.S. Capitol that wasn't race-based at all. And, mm-hmm, and, right. and, and does that, does that pro- um, provide any, any sense of... of um, empathy for police officers who feel like they're they're at risk yeah so i think you know part of i i think part of this demonstrates kind of let yet another lesson about the fundamental logics of american policing i mean there are there are kind of like two tacks um that we've seen that kind of structure strategy that have structured policing strategies historically you know one is for um, racially marginalized groups, low-income people, um, you know, the police as an outside force who is responsible for identifying uh, criminals, potential criminals and suspects, um, and removing them from the community. And in middle class and, 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 and white communities, the kind of purpose and function of police is to protect property um, from those outsiders. But the, the kind of the, the increasing... Um, embrace of the former that is like 
empowering a an outsider uh, who who may not be who usually isn't you know from the community living in the community um, in uniform with a gun uh, only increases fear and mistrust on both sides. I mean, both and James Baldwin wrote about this um, as early as 1961 that that um, that you know both police and and residents in segregated communities view each other as the enemy. And, you know, this, this kind of a dynamic cannot foster meaningful public safety. And, of course, race is very much um, a part of that, where, you know, people of color and black people in particular are seen as latently criminal. Um, protests for racial justice, when black people are collected, you know, collected together, um, you know, whether or not they're violent or nonviolent. I mean, you know, civil rights protests, completely nonviolent civil rights protests, um, were criminalized and met with police violence as well. Um, but yet when, uh, you know, a majority white mob gathers, as we saw, as you mentioned, on January 6th um, on the Capitol to attack um, our national elected officials, you know, the, the response was, was markedly different than the response that we saw to the protesters for racial justice in the summer of 2020 who were tear gassed, um, by uh, U.S. Secret Service and marshals um, in in June in D.C. in order to to make to make a to, to make an opportunity for for then President Trump um, to have a photo op. Um, at, yeah, at the Trump one in Trump front to, of the church, the White House. Right, exactly. So I think you know that was a really stark example of how these kind of differential approaches play out. Um, but the reality is, again, you know, this is where these strategies have really failed. That the the kind of the, the distance between many law enforcement officials and the citizens that they're supposed to be protecting in low-income communities of color is one of fear and mistrust um, instead of safety. And this is, again, why we really need to rethink our policing strategies and what the purpose of function and function of police is, um, especially in communities that are, that are vulnerable, that are the most vulnerable to crime and, and gun violence and other forms of harm. There are two police uh, policy initiatives that have happened off and on over the last at least two or three decades that I think have have been somewhat successful and I wonder what your thoughts are about one um, the integration of police departments themselves having more people of color and and the other is the idea of community policing having police that work regularly in certain neighborhoods um and and we might as well say especially in black neighborhoods in in urban mm-hmm. cities that get to know the people in that community and and can react um, you know maybe more wisely at least that's been my impression do you see it that way too that that those initiatives have had some success well i think you know there are and and from you know the, the kerner commission also one of their big recommendations for policing was to hire more black officers and and uh, you know and, and more women and, and officers of color and this has kind of been a response um you know, I, I think in some ways a, a band-aid quick response um, that doesn't, again, get at some of the, 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 the root problems with policing strategies in general, because we know, and, you know, I write about this in the book, there are 
you know, numerous <laughs> rebellions that also erupt in response to uh, violence uh, perpetrated by officers of color against residents of color. So it's not, you know, having um, having a, you know, someone who looks like you in the uniform with a gun, you know, patrolling doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that you're any safer going to avoid, um, you know, getting arbitrarily arrested or, or beaten or worse. Um, and so, again, it, it's about, you know, we can diversify departments all we want to and even have, you know, all black departments, let's say, but that doesn't mean that some of the, the, the root tensions and also that fear and mistrust are going to be successfully addressed. So I think, you know, just like efforts to diversify in general, um, diversity doesn't necessarily mean equality. Diversity also doesn't mean that racial discrimination and systemic problems um, have ended. Community policing, you know, depending on, I think there's a, it's a it's a broad you know broadly conceived right there there, you know, and, and I, I've worked with police departments that have very different uh, conceptions of what that means. But I think what what you're talking about, which is you know having police officers getting to know residents, um, having police officers talk to the people who they're, you know, uh, charged with protecting and keeping safe and building relationships with communities. Um, is really important. I think part of the problem, uh, and this is again, you know, an outgrowth of this key moment in the 1960s, is that, you know, really in the post-civil rights era, so many social services and social welfare programs have been disinvested from, and, uh, and in many communities, especially low-income communities of color, the, the kind of only public service standing are the police. And so, you know, we, what, what, what's necessary is a kind of host of other, again, going back to the Carter Commission, investments in programs that are going to give people the support that they need. I mean, you know, in, in my work with police departments across the country, many officers have expressed to me that, like, you know, we're not, we're supposed to be social workers. We're responsible for all of these, these, these familial problems, these mental health issues, um, various crises that police officers you know, really in terms of the way that they're trained and, and what they're charged with doing have no business um, in, in, in responding to or dealing with. And so, you know, I think increasing relationships between officers and residents may be a necessary step, but it's got to be accompanied by, again, you know, rethinking um, what kinds of services are available to communities and rethinking, you know, what, what public safety truly means. Yeah, that's that's the 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 new phrase and appropriate phrase public safety because it takes into mm -hmm. account policing but also uh you know providing and getting some people out into the the field to respond to things that are highly specialized like community or like uh mental health issues. Right. More with author Elizabeth Hinton from Yale Street. <laughs>
Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage? Basketball or soccer? So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. 
But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nussel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with author Elizabeth Hinton from Yale straight ahead. You mentioned jobs a number of times, and I, that's something I'm, I'm very concerned about because as technology uh, continues to evolve, and now we're talking about artificial intelligence, and Andrew mm-hmm. Yang launched his uh, presidential campaign in 2016 saying that... Uh, you know, at some point there weren't going to be any jobs that couldn't be done by machines or AI and that we needed to completely change our economy. How does that play into um, this this rebellion that by many different uh, perspectives and analyses has been about jobs for the last right. 50 years? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that is the real issue. I think it's always I think that at the, the heart of the issue, it's always been about jobs. It's always been about access to jobs, and you know the 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 recession of the 1970s, deindustrialization, the 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 movement of domestic manufacturing overseas um, is a is, is a big part of the cocktail of of class inequality and racial inequality that we're still confronted with. And I think the challenge before us now is, is really creating um, by meaningful work and vibrant jobs for people. And, and you know, where, where those jobs can't be found or impossible or until, they, until that can be realized, ensuring that people's basic needs are met, ensuring that people have, that everybody has, you know, access to a, a decent meal every day and, um, and, and decent and safe housing to live in. Yeah, food, clothing, um, and shelter. At the right, very exactly. least. At the very least, food, clothing, exactly. and shelter. And, 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 and we still don't have that health care. Yeah, and, I, agreed. Um, I, but I am concerned that jobs are going to be even harder to come by going forward because of the growth in technology. And then it's about being creative about, you know, where those jobs could be found. I mean, I think that, that, that's one of the things that, you know, programs like the Green New Deal are about. As we move to, to thinking about ways that we can better protect our climate and environment, that's going to open up a, a host of new jobs for people. Um, the infrastructure plan that, that, that's being created as well opens up a host of new jobs. And with these technological in, innovations, can, can, you know, that, that technology can be accompanied by, new industries and new jobs. Um, the question is, you know, how creative are people in, in creating those jobs and, and, and who will get access to those jobs? I mean, I think that's another thing about this history is that in the post-civil rights period, you know, security, surveillance, law enforcement, prisons has become this, this humongous domestic industry um, <laughs> as manufacturing, as the auto industry has has shrunk as manufacturing has moved elsewhere. And so now it's thinking about, well, how can we create 
new industries, especially from communities that are particularly vulnerable economically. Well, my guest is Elizabeth Hinton, and uh, she's the author of America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. She is associate professor in the Department of History and the Department of African American Studies at Yale. And um, Elizabeth, the time has just flown by, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface. We have. (laughs) Because there's so much to talk about with this, and this is a very important time for this look back that you've uh, published. Um, It's just a good time to, to be reviewing that information and rethinking what we do going forward. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Obviously, we want to encourage them to read the book, America on Fire. But but you've written other books, and I just wonder, do you have a website? I'm, I, I have a website on my Yale faculty page. I'm really easy to find if you just type my name, Elizabeth Hinton, into a Google bar. And I'm also on Twitter at E-L-I-Z-A-B. H-I-N-T-O-N, Eliza B. Hinton, um, and that's where I share articles and ideas. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Well, I, I'm glad that, uh, that I was able to find you and that you were willing to share a little time with me and the listeners this morning. Thank you so much, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for this wonderful conversation, Tom. Take care. Again, that was Elizabeth Hinton. The name of the book is America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. came out in, uh, in May, so it's uh, still very new. We're going to take a uh, short break, but we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Got his own 
Listening to Tom Sumner.